Welcome to Enough Room, a music learning project with Symphony Nova Scotia, supported by TD Bank Group. Hello, my name is Daniel Bartholomew Poyser. I'm here with Holly Matheson. We are the dual hosts of this podcast series, wherein guests of Symphony Nova Scotia and ourselves will discuss many of the issues that are really relevant to orchestral music, to music, to the arts, things that are happening today. That's what we're going to be discussing on this podcast. And we're so pleased that you've chosen to join us for this first inaugural podcast with myself and Holly. Holly, how are you doing? I'm great. Thank you very much. It's nice to see you, Daniel. It's nice to meet you for the first time. (laughs) Yeah, it's nice to meet you. This is the first time that Holly and I are actually speaking, talking, interacting. We wanted to save it so that you could see what it's like when two conductors actually meet for the first time. What do they talk about? What do they discuss? Is there there conflict over different tempos? Who knows? We'll find out in the next 45 minutes. So... It does sound like the beginning of a really bad joke, doesn't it? Two conductors meet on Zoom. <laughs> That's a setup, but it's like there's no there's no payoff for that. It is it is really really great to meet you, and congratulations, congratulations on the new appointment. Um, what was it like? I mean, I think we're going to talk about some of the issues that both of us are thinking about that we're grappling with. But I think what would be really interesting is for uh, the audience just to see right off the bat what it's like when two conductors meet for the first time, what it's like when the uh, uh, when the community ambassador conductor and the new music director meet. Let's have that conversation first, and then we can get into some of these issues. So, Holly, what was it like uh, auditioning, getting the job? What made you want to be with Symphony Nova Scotia? Just a couple of those things. The audition was really interesting process because it was just two concerts, so one in uh, two thousand. 18 and one in 2019. So it was a really nice way to audition is actually do the job and see how you get on. Um, and my impressions, well, first of all, of the orchestra, the players was just the loveliest people. So easy to work with everyone, hardworking and, and earnest about their work, but uh, not, not taking it unhealthily too seriously or themselves too seriously. There was a really good sense of we worked really hard for these hours and then, okay, I'm going home. It's time to walk the dog. It was so refreshingly uh, grounded in real life and a living community, which was really nice. Um, And also I got on super well with the staff and the board, just really interesting, funny, intelligent people with a great outlook on what a performing arts organisation can be for a city and for a province. And then the other thing which just blew my mind because it was in October was when I arrived, I flew in over the most beautiful like woodlands of just orange and russet toned um, fall leaves. It was just, it blew my mind as being such a beautiful place. And I have a feeling on the last day I was there, it snowed or something. It was just like, oh, come on. Like, could you flirt with me anymore, Halifax? You know, it was just dreamlike it was so lovely so it's certainly not hard work to want to hang out there for a while regardless of what job you're doing um but but when your future workmates turn out to be super rad people to hang out with as well and that's just icing on the cake you fell in love with both the people and the city basically is what it seems like definitely definitely that's amazing i have had the same experience uh flying into halifax and just feeling the waves of anxiety and city pressure just 
come off because it's so because it's so beautiful. So can you tell us just like some of the other orchestras that you work with that you've worked with in the past couple of years fairly regularly? Um, just so we get an idea of, you know, I know that you're, you're working with so many different groups. So who are some of the people that you work with regularly? Um, so quite a big range here in the UK, the way it, I live in Scotland and the way it works here is that if you're resident here and people know you and trust you, then you do get a lot of guest work throughout the country. Um, particularly with like all of the BBC orchestras, they're amazing employers and they will, once one orchestra, one of the BBC orchestras has had you because there are six around the country, five or six, they will let their colleagues over in Wales know, yep, you can book this person, they're trustworthy. So you end up sort of doing the rounds of those and doing quite a few studio recordings and things. So you get a lot of experience on the microphone, um, which is great. Uh, and then I do quite a bit of opera. I have done in the past. And in the last few years, I've been really enjoyed getting into some ballet with Scottish ballet. And the other sort of main project I have is that my husband and I are co-artistic directors of a street orchestra here in Scotland, which is miles away from everything else I do. It's um, a, a sort of a non-profit charity sort of organisation that takes music into communities that are, for whatever reason, don't have regular or affordable access to, to live art. So that might be geographical, it might be financial, it might be because they're incarcerated, it might be because they have health issues that stop um, them getting to, to concert halls or whatever, or it could be a social reason that into communities that sort of think, well, I'd never go into a concert hall, that's for rich toffs, not people like me. So we just turn up at their rugby club. For rich what? Toffs. Is that, is that a very English thing to say? No, that's great. We just want to clarify terms for it. There have been a few things I've emailed someone at the office at Nova Scotia and they've written back and they're like, um, I don't actually know what that word is. And it's some you know, really silly colloquial turn of phrase, either from Scotland or from New Zealand. But, yeah. So I guess there's there's two questions that I want to ask. One is you talked about building trust because people might not understand how conductors get work, how we keep work. Um, and a lot of it is about trust. So the first question is, how do you, like, what is building trust with an orchestra and how do you, Holly, do that? And the next question is, I just want to ask you about this street orchestra because that's so, there's so much there. So first trust and then the street orchestra. Tell us about that. So building trust, how do you do that as a conductor? So for me, I think building trust is, um, well, it's sort of a two-way thing, actually. It's, it's only one part of it is us wanting to keep getting work. And another part of it is, is this a, an organisation that I feel I have shared values with and want to work with again? Um, and I I think it's interesting at the beginning of your career, as we both are, despite our advancing years, and in the greater terms of things, we're both babies, really, compared to the high techs of the world. And so often we don't have much control over what we can be doing in terms of programming or presentation. We might be handed a program that we have to just take on, especially if we're a guest conductor. Um, so in that regard, I suppose building up trust is just rolling your sleeves up, rolling with the punches and getting on with it and and making it a, a pleasant week's work for the players, really, and for the staff, um, which I, I would hope is what I would want to do anyway. I, th I think we quite often in the arts, um, I think about the dance community as well, definitely, but certainly in classical music, we put a lot of things aside like mental health, um, 
personal pleasure, personal boundaries, family boundaries to, for the pursuit of perfection or, or whatever. And um, I, I definitely try quite hard to not do that and to try and keep it a more healthy balance. And, I, and I'm aware that that means that there are certain organisations and certain situations where I wouldn't be the right conductor for it and certain organisations that would say, well, you're, you're too informal or you're not directed enough towards this other goal. And that's fine. I, I think it's more important to be true to myself and authentic about it and um, just stick to my guns on that. And eventually you find out the people that that, that works for and, and build a relationship that way. Um, I definitely don't go into any, I try not to go into any situation thinking these are people I really want to work with and I have to impress them so that they'll hire me again. Because I just know for myself, A, that would freak me out no end and I'll just end up making an absolute idiot of myself and screwing it up. But also, more importantly, I, I think it would mean I wouldn't be true to myself somehow. I'd sort of be acting what I think they want a conductor to be. Um, and I think as someone coming into the profession who is not what a conductor's looked like for the last 250 years, there's already enough of a risk of that. Um so I'd rather just be who I am and it will work for some organisations and it won't for others. Um, and I'm cool with that. That's absolutely fine. I have no uh, quest for world domination going on. Um, and in terms of the Nevis Ensemble, the street orchestra, that is one of the weirdest things I've ever done, to be honest. Um and that actually, if you're talking about trust, that's more about building trust with community members. So people who have not had any connection with classical music or they think they won't be welcome or they think it's really geeky or they think it's really boring. And we turn up on a bus and from the time we pull up, the players have about seven minutes to get off the bus set up in what, whichever space we find ourselves in. And that could be the top of a mountain, in a swimming pool, in a prison, outside um, and it's going to start raining at any minute anywhere we turn up they've got seven minutes to set up and um, we do a gig that could be anywhere from 20 to about 50 minutes depending on the audience sometimes it's pre-organized sometimes it's spontaneous the police have been called a couple of times when we turned up unannounced and not necessarily wanted in a shopping mall um and it really is just um, building up trust with the audience to go, we've just turned up. You have no idea who we are, but we're going to rock your world for 50 minutes. And that could be a mixture of, well, we try and make it fun and funny and interactive. We we never, we very rarely stand in a group with the audience sitting in its own group. We'll try and mix up the room in any way we can and spatialize and um, if players aren't playing in a piece, they're welcome to go out and hang out with the audience, take some percussion instruments out and start a conga line, whatever. And we do a real mix of repertoire. So classical, jazz, uh, rock and pop, trad fiddling. And we also try to have another even fifth of new commissions for each major tour. So, um, and actually the players do a lot of the work with the programming gig to gig. So we might be on the bus and say, okay, we're going to pull up at a dementia care setting in 10 minutes time. 
this is the rough number of people involved. These are their health issues. They will have their carers with them and a couple of people's grandchildren have come along for the day as well. So there might be some kids present. You've got 40 minutes of music to program from our book. Go nuts. And um, so it means we can be really responsive to who we're going to be seeing. And we might think, okay, well, let's start with something a bit quieter so that people get the idea and then we can, from there, we can take them on a journey. And by the end of it, we'll be playing Rage Against the Machine. And who knows, you know. Um, so in a nutshell, that's what, what Nevis is. I think it's just terrific that Symphony Nova Scotia's new music director has had the police called on her, <laughs> called for having a concert. Um, that's that's tremendous. And I think it's really, it's really interesting that... Um, when it comes to auditioning, you are who you are and you don't try to put on airs or be what you think they expect of you. And then when it comes time to actually forming your own group, this is the sort of group that you choose to form. So why is it important to you to do that kind of work? Why is it important for you to have that kind of a flexible ensemble that is something the word I think that you use that really sticks out to me there is something that we're not something that we're not known for in the industry which is responsiveness case in point I uh, was performing at a concert as a young people's concert at a school and we were in northern Ontario and we all got on the bus and we went to the school and the concert was called lol music laugh out loud music all about humor in music so we get into the state we get on stage we start performing and it is to this day, the deadest, most non-responsive audience I've ever had. And I, I felt chills during the show. And, and it, you know, it worked at this school. It worked at this school. Why is nothing happening? Ah, the night before in this small town in northern Ontario, the news had come that the mill was closing. So those kids went home from school the day previous their parents had found out that they were all out of work, probably like half the city was out of work, and then everything went down. And then the next morning they go to school and an orchestra shows up with, hey, let's be, ha-. it wasn't what was, you know, like, it, it was not what was needed at the moment. But sorry, this is what we planned three months ago. This is what we're playing. So whatever happened last night, sorry orchestra's here and our memo says this and we can't change anything and because you now rightly you can't be changing on players that have been you know working on you know fourth movement of jupiter symphony you know to, to all that practicing you say okay but that's part of the structure so what you've done is actually change the structure of um how the music is delivered you've changed the expectations um what was it like for you to change not just what's happening in the concerts but how it was being done in terms of flexibility, improvisation, all of that. What was that like? Well, I think it's a really interesting question to ponder at the moment because we're facing some of the same existential questions brought about by the pandemic. You know, we had this conversation with Symphony Nova Scotia. Well, if for the next 12 months we're not allowed inside a building other than our own home, how do we do concerts? Do we do them outside? And then if then there's the list of kind of, musicians unions things of well we can't play under a certain temperature and we need the music there two days beforehand and blah 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 blah, blah. all of these sorts of things that we're so used to being normal with nevis none of them have ever applied because we start from the premise that we don't even know what the space will be in let alone it not being a concert hall um and the way we do the music is that we have a book of 35 pieces and they're all numbered one to 35 
and John and I will just hold up a score with a number on the back to go number 16 and they'll turn to number 16. So yes, they've rehearsed all of that music in the week before, more or less. We've we've had a few times where we've run out of rehearsal time and just thought, right, we're just going to have to learn that one on the job. Um, But it means that we can be responsive. So we had a, a really interesting situation, actually. This follows on from your story. We ha- we've gone to the um, city mission, which is sort of where um, people who are experiencing homelessness or um, members of the asylum community can go and get a free lunch from the city of Glasgow each day and or free breakfast. And we would go in and we'd play in the morning and then we'll stay and have um, a meal and a cup of tea with all the people there that, that are there that day. And obviously there are a lot of people with different situations and some quite challenging situations. And the first time we went, um, we were like, okay, should should we be expecting for people to be inebriated, people with drug issues? And we were prompted not to take any photos um, or use our mobile phones while we're there to give a sense of privacy to the, to the service users um, and also to be very careful not to give out any personal details or anything like that. So that's fine. We got there and the bus pulled up and they wouldn't let us off the bus. There was this hold up and Jamie, our CEO, jumped off the bus and he came back and he looked a bit alarmed and he said, it's fine, just stay here for five minutes and then we'll we'll go and we'll start a bit late. And as we were going in, um, he said, just before you all go in, just to let you know, the reason that we had to start late is because one of the regular users of the service who is homeless was sleeping last night in his sleeping bag outside the door waiting for it to open because he had nowhere to go and someone set him on fire and there was just this sort of stunned silence and so John and I were like okay what are we going to do for repertoire then because this is potentially there's quite a big sectarian um, issue in Glasgow between the Catholics and the Protestants, which goes back a long time. So we thought, so it could be something to do with that. There's um, all manner of potentially quite volatile things here. So let's play some quite calm music. Maybe Rage Against Machine is not a good choice for this gig. And we got in and we and we played some, I think, some Debussy to start off with. And you could just see everyone just kind of switching off. And John, he's so brave, he said, Nah, bugger it. Come on, let's let's raise them up. So we did um, I Will Walk 500 Miles, uh, which is a kind of a, a famous Scottish pop song. And it was, you just felt the whole room get lifted up. The tea ladies were out dancing and doing the do-si-do and, and all of these really tough blokes who were sitting there drinking their tea and trying not to watch. They actually got really engaged. And um, so it, it was actually, we had been too careful we'd thought too awkwardly about oh we don't want to upset anyone or make anyone angry they were just totally ordinary people who wanted to just have a really good time and and have a yarn to everyone and actually we had a lovely morning and um it, it being engaged was more important than not being upset or do you know what I mean? It was just a really interesting one to to work out what was the right music to to play. But yeah, we do have that flexibility that we can just change it on the spot. And that makes such a difference when you're in those situations or say if you're in a situation with small children and you think, oh, they'll love this, all of this stuff. And, and you just feel them slipping away and pulling nappies off and rolling around crying. And 
and often it'll be something that you'd thought they would find really not bright and bubbly and engaging enough that they will just <laughs> get completely mesmerised by. Um, so you can sort of, yeah, you can be flexible. But also things like we, when you're in those situations, you don't know exactly what you're going to play on the spot. You've never seen the venue. It's concert number eight of the day. You're all knackered and you've been sleeping on village hall floors and things, so no one's had a proper night's sleep for all week. Um, there's no point getting too worried about it sounding great or, you know, um, whether, whether you're playing with good ensemble. What's more important is um, actually the opposite, that, whoever, that the people who are watching can see all sorts of different people and different experiences and see your response. If something's a bit out of time, we all we laugh about it and it's fine, it's not a big deal, which re relaxes everyone and, and just makes it normal and a bit less um, stultified, I suppose. Absolutely, because as I hear you talk about the conditions and the pressures that are different from concert hall pressures, my my thought is you said, oh, we've all been sleeping on, you know, gym floors. My, my thought was, sign me up. Where do I sign up for this? You know, because that sounds like, let's go, like, let's make music. Okay, gym floor, not enough sleep. Okay, and now the Bach, let's go, let's do this, you know. And that's the whole thing of the responsiveness and the being um, flexible enough to respond to what's actually happening in the moment. And we're actually really in a moment right now and have been with the pandemic, but also um, since, George, since George Floyd, um, a renewed realization within the industry that we need to respond to the lack of inclusion that, there, that, that has been happening, that has been happening systemically all over the place. And what I'm wondering is you have helped ensembles um, respond to the moment you respond in auditions to what the people to, to who, not to not, not, not to what but you respond to that situation you've changed structures how have you responded personally to all of the events that have been happening in the past months with regards to inclusion diversity the new spotlight that's come onto that topic how have you personally responded I think the, the most obvious thing is a renewed vigour in asking orchestras to let us play um, a, a broader base of repertoire. So works that I've been, you know, as a guest conductor, so our listeners might not know, when you're a guest conductor, you might get an email from an orchestra who say, we'd love you to come in in October, you're going to have this person in as a soloist, so we need to do a violin concerto, but let us know your ideas for what goes either side of it. And so it's, it's uh, my guess is you're similar, Daniel, but basically any time I do that, there will be at least one of those pieces will by, be by um, someone who's been underrepresented, a group, so a woman or a, someone from the uh, non-European community, whatever. I'll always try and put something in there to go, it doesn't all need to be Mozart and Beethoven, it really doesn't. Um, and and often the response will be that is so fascinating. I love that piece. We can't sell it. We won't sell tickets. Or if they do, they'll say, okay, the, the, maybe we have that as the opener, but for the symphony, you know, we need a, a sure seller to sell tickets. So the intentions have always been genuinely, that's so cool you've offered that, and I would love to be able to do it, but I can't sell tickets. And in the last few months that has shifted and 
to the point that now I'm getting requests coming in specifically saying, um, we know you have um, this sort of repertoire in in your background and in your interests and um, can you please, specifically we want a program that has these composers in it. Um, And it makes me slightly cheesed off because I think I've been asking you for this for five years and every time you've told me you can't and now because there's been a social media uh, platform has opened up around it, all of a sudden your hardcore women and black rights activists, I don't quite buy that. Um, But at the same time you sort of have to take a deep breath and think, Yep, it, it's token perhaps at the moment, but I've learnt from my history in New Zealand that those token gestures and very deliberate, politically correct gestures do lead to significant change and significant shift towards equality for marginalised groups. Um, so I just kind of do a deep breath and um, think, okay, just go with it, take them up on it absolutely run with it and make it so that it, they enjoy it so much and they see the popularity of it and they see all the good stuff that comes from it that once this is blown over and they're back to worrying about selling tickets, actually this is something they can see they can sell. And it's been the same, say, for women, and I'm cu- I'm really curious to ask you about this. It's been fascinating to see how it's shifted in terms of women conductors and women composers um, being given some space in the the industry, which has happened before George Floyd. Um, we've had sort of five years of that. Um, and the point which organised, the, the discussion and the, the talking around it became powerful enough that actually it got to the point organisations could see they would be financially better off if they hired women. So they're, 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 there was a financial incentive to them either through funding sources and government, state or private funding sources who say, I will give you money if you support this group of people. Or it has now, certainly in the UK, it's become people are curious to see women conducting, for instance. So they will, there's a lot of energy and activity around women conductors and composers on social media, for instance, that gets a lot of buzz sells a lot of tickets. So it's gotten to the point that actually it there's, there's a financial incentive, not just a, an ethical one or a, a public face, a, a tactical one. So that's where we need to get the conversation now with, um, with ethnicity as well, that it's to the point that like, no, this is not a risk. There, it's a benefit and you're going to, you can, some sell more tickets by by saying this about um, your programming practice and your hiring practice, um, and I'm I I personally I'm hopeful that can happen because I have seen it happen with with gender, um, so we've proven it can. But I'm curious to know from you uh, if you what it, what has it felt like? Because it's one thing to be a female conductor and have a perspective on how that's been, and at this point, I think it is the greatest one of the greatest um, positives to to be female at the moment and trying to get into conducting. And I think we get all sorts of opportunities that um, sometimes that we're not ready for actually um, or not good enough for, but also that 
our, our male colleagues of exactly the same background experience and ability are not getting. So it's it's swung way to the other side. Um, but is that how it appears from the outside for you as a male conductor? Do you, it, how does it, how do you think the, the industry's coped with the gender question? I think, you know, it's funny. It surprised me to hear you say that uh, what you said about conducting for female for, for women uh, in the UK that it is seen as um, that people are like, oh, oh a female conductor oh let's go let's go look that it would be and, and I don't know if this is what you meant but almost that it would seem like a novelty um, and I'm is that was that correct like are people is that is that the sense sometimes because why that surprised me is because as as, as a student my first conductor was um, was a woman throughout university the both with the exception of Glenn Price if you're watching you're wonderful but uh Mallory Thompson um Jillian McKay these were these were women who were instrumental uh-huh, in my development as a musician and in the wind band world where I grew up it was all it was usually 50-50 right it was usually 50-50 and then having been in that world mostly and then coming late to orchestra um so many of my colleagues have been women. Um, and I, I don't know, maybe the fact that I was, I was raised by my mom and my aunt, right? So just seeing strong women as part of my family, right? I, I don't, I don't, like, it's not, I think it's fantastic. I think it's great. So for me, it's normal and natural in terms of my musical upbringing because of the people that I had who were formative to me. Um, what it looks like to everybody else, that I don't know. But I think that if um, women are having more opportunities to conduct and take positions of leadership on the, uh, specifically conducting and on the podium, because that's an area where, for real, it still is a lot of ground. There's so much more ground to be um, to be taken. And, you know, there's, there's a difference, I think, between having um, a woman on the podium and people following and, and then what is said afterwards about that person and how they're spoken about. Um, that's where we have room to grow where the conversation is like, is the conversation the same about that woman as a conductor as it would be about a man as a conductor after two performances of Brahms one. So once we have equity and parity, which I believe are different, but I don't know how we can talk about that in the comments section after, but once we have those two things happening, 50% women, 50% men, fine. It's still going to take time for that woman to get off of the podium and have, I think the conversation be the same as it would be about a man. But I think we will get there. We'll get there. Yeah, I find that I find that really fascinating. Um, and you touched on something there that how different it was for you for where, from where you grew up. And I think this is something we're only just starting to get a handle on: is that this is so regional. It's so different in different cultures, and the even two different cultures that have similar le- low levels of women conducting. It could be for a slightly different reason. Therefore. The, the solution to it needs to be a bit more tailor-made in different areas. Certainly in the UK, it's it's only in these recent years that it's it's felt normal to see women, but that's 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 throughout um industries in, in the UK, which is so Oxbridge, patriarchal, royal family. I mean, it is just that's how it's was set up. Whereas I when I grew up in New Zealand, I was the same as you. I mean, I had 
female Prime Minister, Helen Clark, one of the greatest politicians of of the current age, a female mayor, the vice-chancellor of my university was a woman, an incredible woman. She'd won mastermind. She was really overweight, this incredibly powerful, big presence. Head of my department was a woman. And in my family structure, it was like it was very matriarchal, very strong um, women who who really ruled the roost. Um, so it, it's not surprising to me, for instance, coming out of New Zealand, the three conductors at the moment under the age of 50 who are working full-time around the world are all tiny little women. <laughs> um, we're all about 10 years, within 10 years age of each other and about one centimetre height of each other. Um so I think you're right. There's different things in different regions. And if, if I think of North America, my guess is it's slightly different in different states, different provinces, according to the culture in, in different areas. I mean, certainly the states, it's like a different country in every state. Um, so you see different, um, slightly different approaches and slightly different issues. Um yeah, but it's it's heartening. I think you're I think you're absolutely right though that it's about the discussion that goes on, and of course one only knows one's own experience. Um, you know, a lot of people when I was starting out would sort of warn me, "Are oh, you going to have trouble with the brass sections and you know the, the traditionally male sections of the orchestra?" It's not the case at all. The, the players that have a have been more troublesome um, for myself and for a lot of women I know on the podium are other women. And that's a really difficult thing to talk about, but there's there's a lot of territorial kind of gatekeeping goes on of um, particularly when you're a younger woman. And it's the same, I think, for um, when we have players on trial and principal positions and the strings, for instance, often the needly voice that bullies a little bit and tries to debase them will be a woman sitting two seats behind, just sending little darts of um, – negativity to to unseat them and that's a really really tough thing to get our head around at the way we police our own gender or our own group or our own people um according to our own insecurities you know um because often the women doing that are people who have grown up being told they never they wouldn't be allowed to to be in a position of power so they find it really difficult to see um another woman or a younger woman doing it so I have total empathy for it and I totally understand it, but in the moment it's really hard to deal with. Um, of course, it's not always the case and there are some amazing um, women who who hold each other on each other's shoulders, if you know what I mean, and, and really enjoy being supportive to each other. But I think talking about it and really thinking critically about it not just going, yay, go girl, which, you know, a lot of the efforts to get women on the podium have been very wafer thin. And this is another part of the issue is that it, it takes 30 years to grow a conductor. So we can have all the good intentions within the world at the moment about getting women and people of colour on the podium. We won't see the results for another three decades, two decades. Um, and that's a hard thing to come to grips with when we have so many people in the public and in, in positions of funding power and political power wanting to see change. Um, so that's a tough one. But um, do you get the same sense from your perspective? I mean, one of the, sorry to 
backtrack on my own train of thought here, but before I forget, one of the things I was thinking was um, in in the course of my own career starting up, I've had conversations with lots of men who traditionally would not have had a place on the podium because they're shy or here in the UK if they're from a working class background, so they would never have had a chance. They haven't gone to Oxford or Cambridge. They've not been to a conservatoire. Um, And they're not a traditional alpha male. And for them, um, having their female colleagues breaking ground in a way and introducing a new, not just a new model of leadership, but often different types of leading from the podium has actually opened a door for a different kind of man to do it as well which is really cool. And in all of this, we've not even talked about non-binary gender um, colleagues, which is a whole other kind of um, thing. But So that is really, really insightful because I've never actually even really, I've never even talked about that before. But um, I often feel like, sometimes I feel like, okay, I know I'm cut out to be a conductor in many different ways, but sometimes I feel like I don't really fit the mold. And I'm not talking about, um, I'm not talking about anything that would be obvious. I feel, you know, I, I started off as a teacher helping kids put together clarinets at seven o'clock in the morning. I'm pretty touchy feely, you know, like, you know, lots of Brene Brown happening over here. Lots of Esther Perel. We're doing all of that. You know, let's sit and talk, like curiosity, empathy, connection. And then you're in this position where it's like, okay, you know, this, that, that, da, da, da. And sometimes I get off the podium, I'm just like, wow, you picked a really interesting job for your personality type, you know, because I want people to be having fun and I want everyone to be basically happy. And, you know, that's not necessarily what orchestra is all about. Ah, but I see that in my concerts, right? So I see that in the product um, like, like I think like the family concerts that we've been having, which basically turn into dance parties by the end of it. Like, let's be honest, right? That's basically what uh, a DVB family concert looks like in Halifax. Um, so sometimes, yeah, I think having another type of another type of person up there, uh, I think that's a change. So sometimes I have it like I don't fit in in that way. And definitely Mallory Thompson was a huge, um, so she's the director of wind bands at, uh, at Northwestern, is that right? Yes, I think that's where she is. She's, she was just huge. And not, and not anything that she said, just her way of approaching things, the way that she brought in, um, you know, she talked about being on the podium and what can, the ways conductors had spoken to her and what that had done to her and how she'd seen conductors speak to other people. Um, and through these workshops, the University of Calgary Wind Band workshops, just seeing different conductors come through and seeing all of them, you know, within the course of a week, seeing four different major conductors come through and seeing how some of them belittled musicians in ways I won't even tell the story because what they said to these musicians was so hurt. Even saying it online would be, you know, re-traumatizing for you to hear. So terrible. And then having her come in at the end and say, this is what you can do as a conductor. This is the power that you have. Not just the baton, but also the microphone is the other stick that you're handed. And there's power in that as well, too. So her reframing what a conductor is and what a conductor can be, and not just Urtex, Bach, Beethoven, Brahms, you know, clip, but also the whole experience. Like you said, taking the musicians through a beautiful week. 
So in, in the orchestra, uh, for those who are viewing, you might not understand what that means. What that means is if you think of yourself sitting in the position of you're sitting second violin, Symphony Nova Scotia, you're working for, say, I don't how many weeks are we? 30, 40, say, say you're orchestra for 40 weeks of the year. You have your music director for X number of weeks and the rest you have these people coming through. That's a week of your life with basically a different boss. Every week you're given a different person and one person likes their Mozart like this, the next person like this, and you, that's what you do. That person, as, you, as we all know, the person who's in charge of, you know, in charge has such a huge effect. So us as conductors, we come in and we want, our, one of our goals should be, for the young conductors watching this, one of our goals should be the stewardship of this group of musicians who are capable and always willing how are we getting them from, you know, from Tuesday through to the final concert? So they get off that podium feeling like we were challenged, we did it, you know, we, we did things well. It's a really, really important part. Not something that's taught about at university, really. Not, that's, that was never part of my training whatsoever. I had great training. Clark Rundell, who also taught Danuk Wijerotne, who we'll hear from next, in the next episode, fantastic training. But we didn't talk about that. How do music, how, what's, the, what's the, the process of getting through a week, taking people for, a group of people from here to there? The leadership aspect is so, so important. So I can't remember what the question was, Holly, but that's my, <laughs> that's, that's my answer. <laughs> it was interesting, though, because as you were talking, I, I suddenly thought about this thing of um, carrying musicians through the week. And as you're saying, different conductor every week, different style every week and someone making different demands on you every week. And as a player, you have to, to go along with it. And the bigger the orchestra, um, for the listeners' sake, the bigger the orchestra, the worse that is or, or the more extreme that is. So if you have 120 people on stage, that, and certainly here in the UK, three hours rehearsal and then you've got a gig, you know, it's you just have to walk in and go bang, 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 bang. That's it. Okay, off to the pub. Whereas um, with a chamber orchestra or a new music ensemble, you can actually, it's a far more democratic process it's, and it's a, often a far more enjoyable process for me personally because everyone else takes responsibility. But we were talking, when you talk about this thing of a conductor coming in and imposing an opinion, and then you can trust that if you, again, you sit yourself in the seat of, say, the second oboe or something like that and think, well, that person trained on their instrument, they played solo repertoire until they were 28 or whatever, they went to conservatoire or music college and they were in a practice room working on their sound, on their style, on their thoughts, um, doing solo recitals, whatever, and then they get a, a seat in an orchestra and I, it's slightly different for the winds, but say as a string player, all of that personal creative responsibility is just taken out of you, taken away from you. You're completely disempowered in many ways in a traditional orchestra. And um, so I suppose for me what I try to do during a week towards making it more enjoyable for people is to say, well, how do you want to play it? What, do, what does your gut tell you about it? The way you played it was completely different to what I expected, but so much better. So let's do your version and I'll change this, this and this to set it up so it works better. And again, that's really hard to do with a big orchestra. And also the bigger the orchestra and the more entrenched its its culture is, um, and I've worked with some of these in the UK, they get really resentful. If you if you leave a bit of a power vacuum for them to fill intentionally, they read it as that you're stupid or you don't know what you're doing or you're shy or whatever, um, when actually you're saying, no, come on, come back into the room 
play me the the way you want that flute solo to be. And and the really great players, they they come into the room with their own vision and 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 we can try to um do what we can to set that off rather than just putting a lid on going, no, you're not doing it that way this week. Um but it, when you think about that from the player's perspective in terms of mental health, in terms of um, job satisfaction, and then I don't know how it's been for you, Daniel, but for me you, there are certain players that you encounter who have had so many years of this kind of their their own agency as a musician being removed from them and disempowered. Um, and often that gets projected onto their colleagues but also onto you on the podium, onto the management so a kind of a, a, resent, a resentment creeps in and some hostility. And we talk a lot about horrible conductors and how grim some of our colleagues of the past have been. And they truly were odious human beings, some of them, um, and took advantage of their position. And there have been all sorts of abuses of power, professionally, sexually, you know. Um, dear Lord, I hope we're at the end of that um, in our industry. Um but when you think about that um, for yourself as a conductor and you start to feel that coming back to you, it can be just, A, terrifying, but also it, it clamp, makes you clamp down and stop reaching out. I don't know. Have you had any situations like that where that kind of the jadedness of, of orchestral colleagues somehow seeps into their relationship with you as a conductor? Yeah, I have, definitely. And it's hard because you do it's exactly if somebody's if somebody I think I think this goes for any workplace actually if somebody's jaded um they're jaded for a reason right there's been experiences and there's things that have happened to them and maybe things with conductors where they don't I remember when I first got out I was working with an orchestra the first time and I uh sat beside one of the players and we're just we're doing a bunch of stuff I sat beside them and they were just very very cold and it took them about it, not it took them, but it took us about six months of them of me being reliable, basically and basically decent before they were we were able to actually talk. And in my head, it's just like I just I just wonder, you know, I wonder what I wonder why uh, why it's like that. And you know, sometimes I have I've encountered uh, in the same way that musicians have encountered really jaded, probably non nice. Um, conductors I've had moments with musicians that have been very very difficult right I've also had um moments with musicians where and I can't I won't give the exact specific and this person won't even remember but it was with Symphony Nova Scotia um it was right before a rehearsal and somebody said something to me that took me from very very low and they wouldn't have known they wouldn't have known to just they literally gave me um, such a gift that it changed the entire rehearsal for everybody. And I'm not going to say who it was and they're not going to know and the orchestra's not going to remember. And that's just like a little bit of gold that they gave me. Right. So I found generally that in those times of, of difficulty, um, Oh, looking at my whole, you know, eight years conducting, the balance is still swinging towards I still want to be up there on the podium and doing it. It's just it's I, I that's that's what I found. And the other thing I can tell you this story. Um, <laughs> I had I, I was in an orchestra 
uh, working. Th- and we, there's a huge conflict happening uh, with the player. And I was just it was this one concert that I was doing. There's a huge conflict happening with the player. And everything eventually got resolved. But at the during the time of that concert, it was not resolved. And they were in. They were. They were. There was. You know. They were a player. I had to work very very closely with them that concert. Even though they were very frustrated with me during the concert, you would have thought we were in love, and we weren't acting. We weren't pretending. Oh, it's the concert. We're going to pretend to be nicer. No, no. We were there for the Vaughn Williams, and we were there for the Anderson. Because as musicians. We come together, we're fighting for the composer. That's like the sacred thing, right? So we were, I was conducting my face off and they're playing and they're, da, da, da. and then afterwards it's like, okay, now the guns are back out. <laughs> but this, this, this is the thing that saves it. And that's what makes it okay for me is I know no matter what else is happening and I've, ne- I've never had this fail. Once we get out there as professional musicians, that's what's sacred to us. And that's what we love. And I think that's the thing that has also let so many disputes and so many problems be resolved. Because at the end of the day, we know, and I am, I'm being a little bit like euphoric about it, but I think it is true. Like at the end of the day, okay, I may disagree with you, but I know that you love Brahms and I know that I love Brahms. Okay, there's a connection there. There's still something there. I know that you uh, respect the work of Jesse Montgomery. Okay, I do as well too. So we may disagree on this, but... Um, but it, yeah, it, 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 is, it is hard, but I think it's hard for all of us in the same way often, and that makes it a little less hard. Yeah, I think it, it makes you look at your own behavior and think, well, are they actually mirroring something that I'm giving off? And in my case, I know um, I, I suffer hugely from anxiety at times, and that can come across as being cold or cut off or not connecting with the back desks of the strings. And actually, I'm just trying not to poo my pants. I'm that terrified sometimes. But it comes across as like a lack of connection or um, a disdain disdain for, for the group or something like that. So, yeah, TMI. Sorry, just so you all know, there are very few filters uh, on, on my brain. We are going to be talking about mental health and music and uh, and this is a really because it's not something that's often spoken about, especially with regards to conductors. Um, you, you just mentioned, you know, sometimes you're nervous. So, of course, you seem so like, you know, just poised and elegant and refined. And I've heard from so even I've heard you should know, Holly, from other conductors that you respect. They say, Holly is just so the things that I said, refined and capable competent oh yeah no no for real for real. And I'll, I'll tell you more detail after but um <laughs> yeah because we will have you know more discussions but and it's same thing people say oh wow dan you never seem nervous at all right which is super super funny uh because quite often we, we are and we can be but it's not something that's really talked about how we deal with that um, as conductors musicians mental health is not something uh that is really addressed too often so we are going to we are going to talk about that um, in, in another episode, there's going to be an episode coming up, so make sure that you're paying attention. Um, I'm sure, of course, our audience is always paying attention because we... <laughs> um, actually, that's from uh, John Andrea Nozeda. He was working with an orchestra, and he said, ah, okay, first violins, uh, make sure you're, v- you're very careful here. And the concertmaster said, ah, we're always very careful. <laughs> so I have to be careful when you say that. But um, we will talk more about musician mental health um, in, in upcoming episodes, so be on the lookout for those... Holly, you know, it's, 
we've we've been talking for quite a while. I looked down at my clock and I realized, oh my gosh, the time has just flown by. It's so easy, you know. And this this is the first time we're chatting, and I feel I wish I had some tea with me. I did have some tea earlier, but I feel like we could sit down and chat for hours, and we will because we'll be working together very closely. Um, if you ever want to do anything like that ensemble in Halifax, count me in. You're in. You're totally in. It does require the ability to do very bad middle-aged dancing um, in front of the orchestra. Basically, John and my job as husband and wife conducting team, other than when someone's, when one of us is struggling with energy, the other one takes over and we jump up and down and replace each other on the podium, which is a whole other conversation about diffusing the, the the point of power and the point of focus for the audience. So in the end of it, the audience don't even notice us. They don't bother looking at us because they don't, we're changing, which is really cool. But other than that, our main thing is doing really bad dancing, being the slightly overweight middle-aged people at the front of this group of very cool young students who are all very, you know, very stylish and very cool and look great while they're playing. And then there's just two Teletubbies up the front on the podium jumping around like idiots. It's it's very funny. <laughs> it's sort of become our little special gift to Scotland. You know, every concert, John will leap off the podium and start a conga line during, you know, something completely inappropriate. But, yeah, so you have to be up for that, basically. If you're going to come and do a street orchestra, you've got to be up for making a complete idiot of yourself. I think... We're going to be okay. <laughs> I think it's going to happen. I, ba- yeah, based on uh, based on a number of concerts with Symphony Nova Scotia, I think we can say that, yeah, I'll probably be okay with that. <laughs> we'll just, and I'll just leave it there. I'll leave it there. Okay, this is, this is a serious question, a very serious question. What is the weirdest costume an orchestra has asked you to wear for a family gig? Okay, the weirdest costume... It's a it's a toss up between the dog cons- uh, the dog costume. <laughs> Are you serious? Oh yeah, or the cat costume with Kitchener Waterloo. I'm gonna vote for the cat costume because the cat costume was too small, so it only came up to like the legs only came up to my knees, right? And then the paws were big mitts, but then it had it had like. Uh, like the, my entire face was open, but it had whiskers coming. So it was a bad costume. So I'm gonna take. I'm gonna say the cat from Kitchener Waterloo Symphony was probably the worst costume I had to wear. People still talk about it. We got a response from one donor who said, "I loved everything about the, Yule, the Yuletide concert except for that cat, that <laughs> dirty, dirty cat." <laughs> that is brilliant. I want photographic evidence. I think this should be your new bio photo in next year's program season brochure for Nova Scotia the craziest costume you've had you've had to wear on the podium I again have two one um was for an education concert at Royal Scottish National Orchestra where I was assistant for two years and we were doing this sort of um uh it was something to do with Halloween but there was it was like a ghost train was the theme of it and when you know the ghost train went on a bit of a journey and there were saw all sorts of things. But anyway, they dressed me up as a train driver. Um but wearing black but with this kind of little train driver thing in a hat. And the thing is, I might be short, but I'm also quite curvaceous. And genuinely it looked like something from a really bad 80s porno. It was so awful. I mean the, and once you'd noticed that about it, you you couldn't 
unnotice it. It was awful. But actually the funniest one was one of the first gigs I ever did way back when I was still a student in New Zealand. And I got asked to do a concert with a, a youth orchestra. And it happened to be on International Talk Like a Pirate Day, which is a thing in September. And and we were doing Scheherazade. And so they, they worked it out that I um, had an eye patch and a plastic parrot on my shoulder, which, of course, when you're conducting Scheherazade is not annoying at all. And I conducted with a cutlass, of course, which is really useful. But, <laughs> again, sadly, no no photos of that one, which is a shame because I think that was probably a, a killer outfit. Well, that's uh, that's great. Yeah, the things that you uh, that you do as a conductor that you don't get all the costuming, the characters you play, the speak. It's it's really fantastic. Um, it's such an incredible job. Do you know what though? I've noticed something really interesting in this weird pandemic time, um, and I know it's different in different countries and regions in terms of what's starting up and what's happening. But here in the UK, there, there have been um, some interesting recording sessions. So I've done a couple of crazy recording sessions where you're all socially distanced and there's perspex screens and you're going from, you know, it's really creative the way we're having to think about doing it. And a friend and I were talking about it. He, he does a lot of opera and, um, we were like, God, we keep getting all this work and all these kind of rich, famous people are sitting twid twiddling their thumbs, not getting any work. And we're like, I think it's because they're actual bona fide geniuses who need perfect situations and they come out in their tails and they do great work, capital G, capital W. But all people like us who are a bit further down the food chain but are happy to roll our sleeves up and conduct. If you need me on roller skates, I can do roller skates. That's fine. Yeah, I can do that. We're getting work at the moment because we're known for sort of rolling with the punches and getting on with it and being flexible and creative and, and not making a, a fuss about stuff. So it's actually, finally, we're coming into our own during COVID, people who are... Because that's what's needed. We need, we need SUVs now, not Cadillacs. And that's that story with the dog costume, right? This was... um. So San Francisco Symphony, it was the second concert that I did with them. And I was nervous because I thought, if I wear a dog concert for the... And I, I, I wasn't conducting even. I was just being the dog for a PDQ Bach piece, right? And I, and I you know, I had to do the... Oh! And I, I literally watched Jesse Norman do the El, El König and watched her hand... No, I'm not... Um, It was from... uh From... uh Tristan and Isolde. Um, that the final scene, right? I, I watched her do and watched her hand motions. I memorized that for the dog because I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to go 100% in on this. But I was nervous. What will they think of me? Will they ever let me conduct if I don't, you know, if they'll think I'm just a, a joker or whatever? But no, I did the best I could as the dog, right? And then they had me back every single year for the past five years. And then last, they gave me, it was like a concert on the biggest, um, it's called Soundbox, like their biggest, their biggest show, right? So I was like, oh, you know, I'm really glad just everything that people give you. And this is for all young conductors, musicians out there. Just everything people give you do 100% the best that you actually can. Yeah. And also let yourself be silly and funny and you don't have to pretend you're a genius. You don't have to live up to the kind of romanticized, the, the, the thing we sell as classical music. It, it doesn't exist. It, it's totally normal people who don't know all the answers and and are muddling through it as best we can. And 
Um, it's been a, a huge uh, weight off my shoulders to learn that about my colleagues. And actually, I learned that because my first job when I moved to the UK was as librarian at the Philharmonia. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I know. I was Esther Pekka-Zellinen's librarian for two years. It was wicked. Um, I learned a lot of very rude jokes in that time. But, we, you know, one thing I learned was that when you're on tour with these mega star conductors like Marzal and Dokunanyi, they have bad days. You know, I'll never forget Ashkenazi coming off stage and saying, oh, shit, I forgot to conduct the last bar. Oh, shit. <laughs> and he just finished a, a symphony on the, on the, you know, before the perfect cadence had finished and the orchestra just sort of watched him walk off and then they played the last chord, you know. <laughs> but it, 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 no one died. The podium didn't explode. No one's violin went on fire. No one in the audience cared. They just... You know, they were just happy to be there. You know, so you, it was so nice to learn this sort of, oh, God, you know, get over us. We have to get over ourselves. No one dies when someone plays a wrong note. The concert hall doesn't explode when it's not in tune, you know. Uh, but if they play a wrong articulation, then people die. So <laughs> it's like, yeah, no, it's okay, whatever. But articulate, up, no, okay, whatever, we're all done. Holly, it's been so great. I wish we could continue on, but we need to stop here, unfortunately. But the conversation is not stopping. So Holly and I will be back chatting again because we only really scraped the surface. Holly will be leading other conversations. I will be leading other conversations. And we really want to have your feedback. Uh, we want to hear from you about what you think about our conversation so we can continue it. Questions, disagreements, absolutely. We want to hear. So please chime in, get in touch with us. And um, Holly, maybe I'll turn it over to you to say uh, the final the final goodbye as we cap off this episode of Room Enough. Well, I think my final, well, first of all, huge thank you, thank you to you, Daniel, for um, kind of being, uh, sharing or being at the helm of this um, I think your your title as community ambassador is so well deserved and probably doesn't even come close to how much you do for Nova Scotia, but 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 other orchestras in Canada as well. Um, but also thanks to everyone for tuning in. And I do hope that I'd fervently hope, even though we miss normal concert making, what I hope is that this period of all of our lives is that we learn a whole other way of interacting with music in our lives, whether that's talking about it, doing it ourselves at home, um, exploring other ways of enjoying art music, I think is a great thing. And for me, this conversation series is all about that. So please stay with us and join us and send us some messages. And I think we're both on social media. So tell us that we need to swear less or, or that we, you want photographic proof of uh, Daniel in a cat costume or whatever you want to, however you want to interact, please do and keep the conversation going. And and I think um, the reason we we chose the title we did for the series is because there genuinely is enough room in this industry to expand our ideas, expand our repertoire, open the door to new people to take part, either as players, conductors, composers, audience members. There is enough room and. Um, I think that's a really wonderful way to start this whole new period, this whole new chapter of um, art music and our lives. So thank you for joining us. All right. Take care. We look forward to your comments. Stay safe, everyone. Bye. Bye.